You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 341, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Jason Taylor is currently a principal software engineer at Texas and has been a software engineer for 15 years. He graduated from the University of Colorado with a degree in electrical and computer engineering. He was employed at a large telecom company for seven years, then worked at several startups since 2012. A Colorado native, he grew up in a small town in the mountains. Welcome to your first podcast, Jason. Thanks, Brittany. I'm somewhere between terrified and excited. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Well, that's going to be a great conversation. So, Jason, let's start it easy. What is your developer origin story? Um, I went to engineering school at CU, as you mentioned, sort of because I liked computers, and that was as far as I thought it through. Um, So after realizing I don't like hardware, I got an internship doing a software problem at that telecom company, and... Um, really just found out that I enjoyed writing software. So I kept doing that and that was a proprietary language. So at some point I decided I need to learn a commonly used language and found Ruby. So That's awesome. So what is your specific experience with Ruby and Ruby on Rails? Um, I started learning Rails around 2008 and um, it was V2 at the time. And I kind of taught myself Ruby and Rails over a couple of years and ended up getting a job at a startup on a Rails 3 app uh, in 2012 and um, kind of been working at various startups doing different Rails apps ever since, everything from version 3 to version 6. Very cool. Would you say at this point the majority of your career has been around Ruby on Rails? Uh, Yeah, I think at this point um, that can be true. It's been about 10 years overall of professional experience in Rails. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, you're currently a principal engineer at Textus, and I think there's a lot of ambiguity around the idea of being a principal engineer. Sometimes it's principal, sometimes it's staff. I think there's a lot of listeners out there that ultimately want to get to that role. And so I'd love to hear from your side what you currently think being a principal engineer is. Um, Yeah, I think for me, there's a lot of it is being able to take any problem or feature work or anything that the business needs done and taking that from beginning to end, including design and and coding and all the way out to production um, from a technical point of view. um, And also being able to take other engineers and lead them on that same project. Um, And then I think uh, from a non-technical side, a difference I've noticed between being a principal and being a senior is kind of a greater understanding of the business side of things and the business objectives and how um, the things you're building into the product are aligning with those objectives. That's interesting. Yeah, I see a lot of situations where we turn to you just to see if something is even feasible. And so you have a lot of great gut instincts that I imagine you've developed over 10 years of working in Rails. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes with experience and like other places where you broke something a certain way and realize, oh, that's a bad way to do it. So I'm going to do it differently now. (laughs) For sure. And, you know, with your 10 years of experience with Rails, I always like to point this out to the listeners. But Jason, would you say that Rails can scale? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think Shopify is proving that every day. (laughs) I agree with you. So I always love to hear an origin story of how someone lands at a job. So how did you land at Textus? 
Um, I belong to a Boulder Ruby meetup group. Um, and so I go there it's once a month and we listen to technical talks and, you know, it's a basic Ruby meetup. Um, and the chief architect of Textus actually gave a talk there one time on the architecture of our current application and the dry libraries. And I thought it was a super interesting approach and a way to build like a modular Rails app that I thought was exciting. And um, right after that, they needed a DevOps engineer. So I jumped on the opportunity. <laughs> That's fantastic. So how do you split your time between all the DevOps work that you do and your, I guess, we'll call it principal engineering? Um, I kind of, uh, it sort of flowed between uh, administering, I guess, different uh, third-party things like Elasticsearch or whatever other um, services we rely on and uh, like greasing the wheels in our code base uh, to interact with those things. So I think that that's kind of the line for me. Awesome. So one of the cool things that text us is that we have an integration into Slack called Donut. And what it does every month is it will randomly pair you with someone within the company. So that way you get to know someone new. So as the listeners are familiar with, I've only been a text us for about 10 weeks at this point. But my first Donut matchup was Jason. And, you know, in our short time together, I've learned that Jason is actually quite fearless, which is something that I have personally struggled with as a being a developer. I have experience in hosting. I've seen databases get dropped. I've seen assets get wiped. I've seen all kinds of things happen. And the thing about Jason is that he's actually quite fearless in the things that he does. And I think it's a really valuable lesson to share. So Jason, where did you develop this philosophy from? Uh, I think it's um, mostly gained through experience. Uh, Being at a bunch of small startups will teach you that like, you, you get exposure to a lot of different parts of the system. And so for me, early on in my career, I was really scared. I was scared of breaking production like everybody else is. But um, I realized over time, like there's only a few things that like are really scary to break. Like you don't want to drop your database or lose data and everything else can be fixed. Like, and usually pretty quickly. And we do that all the time and we call them bugs. <laughs> and so, uh, I just kind of came to the realization that like, oh, I can I can break it, but I can also fix it. And so if I understand really well how it runs in production and how I can get my code out to production quickly, then I can fix it and there's nothing to be scared of. I can say that I have enough experience with Rails now that I can remember when in Rails 5, I think it was, that they announced the ability, well, actually the feature that if you tried to run your test suite against production, they would stop you because usually that route involves a database cleaner of some sort where you could wipe out all your production data. Prior to that, there was absolutely nothing stopping you from just hooking up production to your test suite. So I think we've seen a lot of tools come along that really try to nudge us in the right direction because I think you'll agree with this. We just have a lot going on and it's so easy to make mistakes. Right. And that's why I think a good understanding of how all the parts of your production system wire together and what things affect what is like a great piece of knowledge to have to to feel like you can change stuff without breaking it. Absolutely. So you have a specialty and that specialty is plunging into legacy systems and figuring out your way quickly. Do you have any good stories to share? Um, yeah, I have actually a couple. Um, my 
uh, a lot of times with these legacy applications, you uh, we talk about tests in the Ruby community all the time, but there are an awful lot of legacy applications that have no tests. And so being dropped in on one of those and figuring out like, okay, how do we fix this is, is always a challenge. Um, but my at one of the companies I worked at, I uh, was dropped in on a, on a Rails 4.2 app that um, was auto-deploying on every production merge uh, or every merge to the main branch. And it was uh, also caching all of a lot of the front end. So we would try to deploy something and it would not show up in the front end. And um, also it would deploy things when we weren't expecting them because it would automatically deploy on every merge. And so it was a matter of um, like going through each of those problems as we found them and sort of unwinding those and then putting tests around it as we as we found them. Um, but one of the fun things is like uh, we found a, it was caching the whole front end. And so we found, okay, well, every time we deploy and we make front end changes, we need to clear the entire cache. So we added a Rails cache clear to the deployment step. And then that, of course, cleared the whole Redis database. And little did we know that's also where the rescue queues lived. So every time we deployed, we were dumping all of the queues and all the backed up jobs, oh, no. um, which was leading to like, hey, we're missing analytics or somebody didn't get an email. And it was all these sort of random problems. And we were like, spent a long time actually sort of being confused by that before I figured out like, oh, wait a minute, these are all in the same Redis database and we're dumping all the jobs every time we deploy. <laughs> So that one was fun. That sounds really fun because I had a similar problem where every time we deployed, uh, the front end was not clearing the cache. And so we also did the same thing where we put a cache clear on the deployment. But unfortunately, the way that our app was built, you know, it was deploying onto each server and then it would clear cache on every single one. So at one point, you would have some servers with the new code and some servers with the old. Well, because you cleared the cache, all the new servers, when they went to go uh, serve requests, they couldn't find the assets that were previously there because the cache was clear. And so we ultimately had to create a job to clear the cache once all the servers had passed through. But it was the same thing. We would have all these asset problems and we could not figure out why because of course clearing cache, like who doesn't want to do that? And little did we know we actually were the ones that caused the problem. Yeah, I always find like asset pipeline stuff to be generally confusing and also the source of many of those confusing errors where it's like, this thing we just built isn't showing up. Uh, what's happening? <laughs> I completely agree. So you have more stories to share, don't you? Yeah. Um, another great one was um, uh, was working for a company called Mobile Cause, building a fundraising uh, platform, and uh, we were on Rails three two for a long time, and sort of. Uh, because of the way startups go sometimes, you don't have the big enough team to keep up with all the updates and everything. So uh, when the effort, when it came time to upgrade to Rails 4, um, that sort of involved upgrading an entire mess of things. Everything from, you know, our spec, a major version, to the version of Ruby we were using by several, like from 2.0 to 2.4 and kind of a lot of, and like pretty much every gem in the whole system was out of date. So. Um, we had to figure out a way to do that without disrupting the team because we had a whole load of feature work that was still going on that couldn't be paused. Um, so basically, 
my strategy there was um, I created a second gem file that was just for the Rails 4 gems, basically. And um, I, I build script to install Rails 4 gems and Rails 3 gems on my local machine so I could flip back and forth between basically like what's running in production, which is Rails 3, and what's running on my local, which is Rails 4 with all the new gems. And just sort of painstakingly went through every single place where we would have a conflict or some code need to be updated and wrapped all those changes in an environment variable so that we could toggle in each environment turning the new version of Rails on or off. And that would toggle the gems that were installed and also any code that needed to change between them, um, which was a pretty manual process, but it worked out really flawlessly um, because I was able to pretty much solo upgrade the app um, while the rest of the team was working on features and everything else and we didn't slow anybody down. Um, so that was a lot of fun. But and I think the, the only issue we found in production after that ended up being that Rails 4 changes um, the, the default value of an HTTP header, um, which we found out the hard way. And then uh, I was able to actually get a documentation commit into Rails for that. So that was kind of fun. Oh, that's really cool. I love that you yeah. were able to create this custom flag, which I mean, that sounds that sounds like a lot of work that you built there. But the ability to be able to toggle back and forth just for sanity's sake, because it, it can be so easy, especially in a legacy application, once you've done the upgrade and let's say you don't have great test coverage, is to wonder, did this actually work before? And so right. the fact that you could flip back and forth is incredibly cool. And I love that you I love the fact that you got a contribution out of it. Yeah, it was fun. And I think that like one of the goals with upgrade with huge upgrades like that is like those all the underlying dependencies touch so many things that you want to be able to like do them in as small a chunks as possible. And so being able to toggle back and forth lets you easily figure out like, oh, this gem I can upgrade all the way and just release that on its own PR and not have to worry about it because it doesn't care whether it's Rails 3 or 4. And you can kind of break all the work down instead of having these giant long running branches where you just hope to keep pace with the rest of everything that's going on. This episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails applications. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before my end users can ever see them. With weekly digests and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building a great product by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today by going to scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails and you'll have the performance insights you need in less than four minutes. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Thanks to Scout APM for sponsoring the show. I agree. So with all of your experience in Ruby on Rails, I am curious, when you have to develop a new feature, do you tend to look at Ruby gems to see if there's something already out there in the community, or are you at the point where you really prefer to roll your own thing? I definitely prefer, I will use a gem if there is one, and I try to evaluate gems a little more deliberately than I used to. Um, I used to definitely just 
find a gem that had a lot of downloads and try to use it. But now I'll go through the code in that gem a little more and just try to make sure that like this is still being actively maintained and I can rely on this as a dependency for my application. Um, because I think when you, unfortunately with open source, sometimes people move on to new projects. And so when something stops being maintained and then you're dependent on it, you either have to make the choice of maintaining that yourself from now on, or you have to decide to rip it out. And either way, that's more work down the road. Um, so it's like kind of a trade-offs thing in my mind. I think the most devastating thing is when you are currently depending on a dependency, it hasn't been updated in a long time, and there are open pull requests to fix that said dependency mm-hmm. that you know you can't merge and that you as a community can't come together and say, hey, like this has clearly been abandoned. Can we somehow take this over and be able to get it versioned up? And then in that case, you end up having to fork it, which you're right. It, it adds technical debt to the team, and that, that's tough. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do, and I think GitHub has made it a lot easier, um, is trying to reach out to those maintainers via email or on Twitter or something and say, hey, can I help you out with this? Um, I have some time and I'm invested in in getting this updated. So if you want to let me help out, I'm willing to do it. That's awesome. So at Texas, you've taken over a lot of the responsibility, as you mentioned, on the DevOps side. So what technology was new to you when you got to Texas, and what was a familiar old friend? Um, well, actually, a lot. Uh, Rails is an old friend, but Rails 6 was, was a new friend, <laughs> um, along with like a lot of things. It's been a lot of new, new experiences for me. I think the biggest one is probably Elasticsearch. Um, we use that for search and for um, text message read counts, basically. But um, it's a huge learning curve on um, figuring out how it works and how an index is built and uh, all the stuff that goes along with running a cluster in production because um, there's a lot of like new terminology and new concepts that I had to learn to kind of get my head around um, how it runs and how to, how to run it, basically. Absolutely. And you were recently in charge of our SendGrid migration. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Um, yeah, we had, um, we're, our platform's hosted on Heroku. And so we have Heroku add-ons for a lot of things. Um, and we've reached the point where um, we were outgrowing our, the limit of what a Heroku SendGrid add-on could do. Um, so we made the decision to move over to uh, like a I don't know what you would call it, I guess an OEM SendGrid account. Uh, and so the fun piece of work involved with that was we didn't, we have a bunch of background job queues, but emails were being sent through just the course of normal job processing. Um, so it's like if you had a job that did something, it might also send an email. And um, one of the things SendGrid requires when you when you move an account is uh, you have to migrate an IP address so that you keep your reputation and don't get marked as a spammer. And so we had to have the ability to pause our email sending and without pausing all of our background queues because then that would make our app look like it was down because you would see a lot of things get out of sync and things like that. So um, it was I had to go in and add a, add a queue for mails for email only and then um, like kind of refactor all of our various jobs to send asynchronous email through that queue so that we could pause it, um, which was actually a lot of fun. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was shocking to me as a text messaging company just how much email we send. But I mean, you have proven it. We we do send a lot of email, and it's really part of our reliability. Right. I'm I'm also I'm still shocked by how many emails we send. <laughs> <laughs> so, how about AWS? Was that new to you, or were you already familiar with its kind of very confusing interface? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I'm familiar definitely with parts of it. There's always many different AWS products that I don't have experience with, but um, probably the heavy hitters like S3 and those I've had quite a bit of experience with. Very cool. So as I ask all of my guests, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and the Ruby on Rails communities, especially as someone who's been in the community for more than 10 years? Um. I think the future, the a, a lot of Ruby stuff like Rails, especially, has reached like a certain level of maturity. Where when I first got into it, you know, there was definitely a lot of changes going on in every Rails release, and there was uh, you, you it definitely had to cause more downstream changes in your application uh, doing an upgrade than it does now. Like now. It's very, I highly recommend the Rails upgrade guide if you have to upgrade your major version of Rails because it's, it's down to a science, frankly, and it's nice to have that kind of maturity um, with the frameworks that you work on. Um, but another thing about Ruby at large that I find exciting is there's a lot more going on in Ruby than just Rails these days. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago, everything was very Rails-centric because Rails was the first big thing that anyone had ever had exposure to Ruby with. Um, and I think that's understandable, but now, like we've been talking about dry libraries at work a lot and like Hanami and a lot of those kind of things are, um, kind of coming out of the woodwork to be alternative ways to do certain things where rails isn't your only option anymore. And I find that exciting because, uh, as a community, it will expand our, um, our knowledge set and the amount of problems we're able to solve with Ruby and hopefully Ruby will keep going for a long time because it's a super fun language to work with. So in terms of Ruby innovating, of course, we can all look forward to the fact that on Christmas Day, it sounds like we will be getting Ruby 3.0. So what do you anticipate the work being around at Texas in order to upgrade to 3.0? Um, I think we're, we're currently on 2.6. Um, and I think our big challenge has been um, there's a lot of deprecation warnings that come out for 2.7. Um, and I think they just added a toggle so that you can alternatively turn those off. But um, I think f fixing those and, and kind of waiting for a bunch of our dependencies to fix those is what we've been waiting on. But um, technically, I don't see a, too many roadblocks for us to get to Ruby 3. Very cool. So, Jason, how can listeners follow you? Um, I'm the Tizzo, uh, T-H-E-T-I-Z-Z-O on GitHub and Twitter and everywhere else that isn't a Facebook property. So you can find me out there. Fantastic. So listeners, as I told you, I work with a lot of really amazing people at Textus. And of course, Jason had to be our first guest, but expect to hear from my other colleagues. And Jason, it was great to have you. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review, and thank you for listening.